we now have at least half an hour for questions. And if we, um, if, we, if when you're called, could you wait for the mic to go to reach you? So, do we have any questions from the floor? I'd like to ask the last speaker. Um, <clears throat> most of what we hear today provoke a lot of questions. Yeah, but I can't allow past the claim by the last speaker that John Redmond sent people to their deaths, and furthermore to state that it was a, in inverted commas, fact. John Redmond encouraged people to join the forces. However, those who joined in Ireland joined as volunteers, irrespective of their fate. The victims of violent nationalism in Ireland never volunteered. I'd like your answer and comment on that. I'd agree with your second comment, but I think to suggest that if you encourage people whom you know have long recognized you as your leader to volunteer and they get killed in their thousands, then it seems to me you bear some share of responsibility. You can't just wash your hands. A gentleman down the back there, yeah. Uh, I'd just like to make two points concerning James Joyce's attitude to this problem and Arthur Griffith's. James Joyce's attitude was that the whole idea of home rule for Ireland was a British myth. They were never serious about it at all. Even Gladstone, he says, wasn't serious about it because he knew that the Parliament Act would take care of it if it was voted in. Joyce, as you know, was an advocate of Sinn Féin and Arthur Griffith but what he was calling for was a revolution, a successful revolution. But he said, that will never come until I have taken the last tram home. Unfortunately for him, when the revolution did come, he was in the process of uh, taking the king's shilling, which he needed very badly. Arthur Griffith, opposed, he, he, he was willing to give home rule a chance and he was against uh, the Easter Rising. The reason he was against the Easter Rising was because he knew at second hand what had happened in South Africa and the Boer War. Mention has been made several times by how Irishmen fought in the Boer War in the British Army. The record there of the British Army is one of utter disgrace, and it's not something that any Irish person should be proud of. One of the first concentration camps in the world was set up by the British in South Africa, and thousands of Boer children and women died there. Thank you. Okay, does anyone on the platform want to, um, I think we have the gentleman around the back and then this gentleman here. Um, the gentleman around the, with the purple tie. Sorry. No. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get in for John's lecture this morning, but uh, it wasn't really necessary with my morning coffee. I was able to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was ahead of the posse at that one. Uh, Union Cambridge wasn't all bad. They failed to give a degree to Oliver Cromwell. He failed. And something that I want to mention now, which is relevant to so many dominions, so many, so many countries that were, if you like, broken up uh, as events evolved through the centuries, would appear to be the ineptitude 
of the British, most particularly the English, I would say, in the division of countries that they proposed vacating or indeed uh, suppressing even more thoroughly than they'd previously done. I'm thinking particularly, in the first instance, they did a rather good job in the Negoste Paris Conference of 18, uh, 1781 to 83. They spent two years uh, negotiating terms for the 13 newly independent states in what has evolved into the United States. And that appears to have gone relatively okay. But when somebody talked about Pakistan earlier, I wonder if um, the subcontinent of India would have been divided with somewhat more discretion by Earl Mountbatten if his wife was not having an affair with Jawaharlal Nehru at the time. And he conducted the whole affair in about seven months. So the whole of the subcontinent of India was chopped up without any attitude, any thinking with regard to tribal boundaries, ethnic boundaries, all the, the, the Pashtun and all the other uh, tribes and peoples that are there, vast peoples in their own right. Look at the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Look at the Balfour Declaration. The Holocaust from which we're now reaping because of the ineptitude of what Ronan Fanning talks about the parliamentary parliamentarians in Westminster, who, by their nominee, because of their nominees, sowed the seeds for the Holocaust in the Middle East and elsewhere in Asia that we are now reaping. I think it's a sad, sad legacy to have to live with, and we ourselves have paid the price for their ineptitude, not least in the Boundary Commission which has been dealt with many times before. Thank you. Okay, good. Pass the mic to the gentleman there on the side of the aisle. Sorry, uh, um, thanks. Um, sorry. I'm just, something I'm very interested in is the obviously the northern question. Um, because once, as far as I'm aware, and if I am wrong, please do correct me, in 1920, when uh, home rule was given to both the south and to the north, um, there were protections in place in terms of popular representation so that minorities were reasonably represented. And then the abstention by Sinn Féin allowed for the eventual overarching domination of Ulster Unionism. And first of all, is that not a an indication of at least some degree of uh, <coughs> belief in or uh, push towards uh, the protection of rights of minorities? And on the other side, is it not a result of the violence of 1916? Because for so many centuries, Irish politics was marked by violence, including the 19th century uh, Fenian dynamite campaign that so identified Irish politics with violence that with the Home Rule Bill being passed in 1914, there was the first option, the first chance of true democratic drive towards an independent Ireland and the turning of the back of the Irish backs on that, would that not have very much driven towards and deepened divisions between Protestants and Catholics? And is that not one of the main reasons that we now have such continuing sectarian division now? Okay, I think, um, could you take the mic to the fair-haired gentleman over there? Then we will go to the panel and then we'll take some further questions. Okay. Sorry about that, I've been waiting to get in for a while. 
No, I rejoice, and I'd like to begin by saying I rejoice today at the um, referendum in Scotland. It's, it's, a, it's whatever way it goes, it's been tremendous um, excitement. It's particularly in the last two weeks, it has really taken off and generated. There uh, is expected to be record turnout, and it reminds me somewhat of the the extraordinary turnout in South Africa at the end of apartheid when people queued overnight. And in fact, even maybe longer than overnight to cast their vote, they had waited so long for this this occasion. But um, on, on on home rule, I, I think I I I borrow a phrase from French from from the from the French, which say, you know, il, il, il faut pour avancer, il faut recoller. That you cannot just start with John Redman. You have to go back to where the the birth of the Irish Parliamentary Party under Parnell and, and and the, the kind of party that he created. He created a party, it was something new in, in, in British politics, whereas he created a, a solid bloc who would vote under his command, so that then he could, he could present that to either party, to, to either the Tories or the Liberals, and say, if, if you want my vote, in the case of, uh, of um, there wasn't a clear majority, he could then force their hand. Now, as it was, of course, it was only the, the Liberals who took up that option. But I think that um, parallel, of course, rich, from, from the very start, his, his, his project was home rule. Now, he did, you could say, he got diverted onto the land league question because he realized that this was going, this was going to be a popular uh, issue in Ireland and he could mobilize a lot of, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, support behind that, which he then, once once Home Rule Land League was out of the way, he could then bring that back into play um, in Home Rule. Of course, as we know, Parnell failed in that project. But I think that, that the lessons from that were not forgotten by the Tories and the Unionists. They, they, they were, the, the Tories were smarting under the Land League legislation, which, which more or less destroyed the power of, of the landlords in Ireland. But the, the Unionists could see that any home rule in Ireland was going to put them into a permanently minority position from which they could not release themselves. And they were naturally, they were never going to buy into that project. There was, there was, they were coming as well, of course, from a totally different culture, a religious culture, one based on individualism versus the Catholic one, nationalist one based on power coming from the top. Uh, could, you, could you make it a bit short? We have more people Sorry, trying. Sorry, I'll leave it at that. Okay, right. Thanks. Yes, I'll, I'll go to the panel and then we will have some more questions. Uh, John Bruton? Well, uh, I'd like to say, first of all, that I, I agree with the, what the last speaker has said. And if it is the case that we have probably the most disciplined par party system in Parliament in the world here in Ireland, it is in great measure due to the discipline that the Irish Parliamentary Party was put under by Parnell and which was applied subsequently by, by John Redmond and, and, and other leaders. Um, I, I think it's, it's fair to, to reflect on whether or not uh, Bismarck's method, which Ronan Fanning seemed to favour of blood and iron. I didn't favour it. I said it was the view of British historians. Well, I think we tried blood and iron, actually, to resolve the problem uh, of the unionist minority in Ireland. We tried it in 1916 
it didn't resolve it then. We tried it in 1922 when Collins authorised various incursions across the border in order to undermine the Northern uh, Unionist separate existence, and that didn't work. It was tried again in the 1955-56, that didn't work, and it was tried extensively. Blood and iron was tried, and there was a lot of blood and a lot of iron uh, in that campaign that went from 1968 uh, right up to, um, I suppose, 1994. Didn't work. Uh, parliamentary methods are not perfect. Parliamentary methods, particularly if you're in a minority, as the Irish party was, are very difficult to apply. And that's why you need to be disciplined, and they were disciplined. And that's why they got home rule on the statute book. Today, this is a parliamentary democracy. That's the way we work. We don't use blood and iron uh, to resolve our problems in this uh, state today. And yet, we seem to be going to commemorate mostly those who were either initiators are of or victims of blood and iron. I think we should, uh, as I said, uh, commemorate other achievements achieved by other methods equally. The criticism has been made that the Home Rule Party didn't have a coherent vision on all of the various things they would do once they got Home Rule. That's a fair criticism. But it's a criticism that can be equally applied to those who initiated separatism uh, on, on, on a violent method. They simply declared a republic. There wasn't even detail about the form that the republic would take. There certainly was no addressing of the unionist minority problem uh, by the 1916 leaders or by Sinn Féin. In fact, as I said, they were oblivious of the problem and regarded the unionist minority as simply something that had been created artificially by the British. Now, John Redmond didn't make that mistake, though I would concede that he didn't go far enough in trying to understand why it was that unionists were afraid to come in under a Dublin government. And such efforts would, I think, have been uh, useful. Um, I, 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 I accept that... Um, all legislation can be repealed, but there was no intent on the part of the coalition government that was re-elected in Britain in 1918 to unravel the Home Rule Settlement. It was only because the Irish people rejected the Home Rule Settlement in the way that they voted in December 1918, when they voted instead for separatism and for you know, breaking the link and for a body that declared a republic unilaterally regardless of any negotiation. It was because of the decision of the Irish people that Home Rule, the Home Rule project foundered in the, in, in the end. I think we should, and this is the last uh, point I want to make here, I think we should avoid finding things to criticize in what the British did. It's pointless. That's their problem. That's their problem. We have no responsibility for their mistakes. They made huge mistakes. Their position in India, as Maurice Regan correctly pointed out, was disgraceful, the way in which that partition was drawn up. Britain has been making mistakes over and over again. But because a parliamentary democracy, not ours, but another one, does make mistakes, that's not a reason for saying that parliamentary democracy should be bypassed and that people should take the law into their own hands. That's my view. We shouldn't take the law into our own hands. We should work the law to our advantage using every instrument which the Irish party did including mobilizing support in America, uh, which would have been much more effective in the Peace Conference of 1919, uh, American support, if 
there hadn't been an alliance made by those who were elected by the Irish people in December 1918 previously with the Germans, that we would have had more clout in Paris mm -hmm. if we hadn't had what happened in 1916, in my view, as I said. Okay, uh, Dermot Malady, any comments? I'd just like to respond to uh, Professor Fanning's last point uh, where he centers uh, his, his claim that, uh, um, basically saying that the uh, Home Rule Bill, right from the very beginning, or even from before it was introduced, was pre-programmed to fail. I, I think this is a, there's a sort of grim fatalism here that I, in my reading of what happened in those two years, 1912, 1913, is not borne out by the evidence. Um, um, I, I would question whether that cabinet meeting of February 1912 was the most important uh, British government meeting since 1886 on Ireland. But um, one thing it leaves out is the fact that uh, Asquith and the Liberals, the Liberal leadership, were not acting in isolation. They had an electorate uh, which voted them in, and that electorate believed quite strongly in giving Home Rule to Ireland. That uh, campaign had been. Uh, one, Redmond himself had been up and down the, the cities and towns of Great Britain for, uh, since he was elected leader and long before that, uh, campaigning and uh, trying to convince the, the British working class and the middle classes who voted Liberal and Labour of the case for Irish self-government. And he had largely won that case by 1912. Uh, Asquith simply couldn't, uh, he had to, uh, to go some way towards satisfying um, his own electorate, uh, which was fully convinced of the need to give Ireland home rule. But secondly, the actual uh, um, the actual discussions which took place in late 1913, uh, it's very hard to make to uh, reconcile those with some kind of preordained scheme of failure dating back to the. Um, to before the beginning of the Home Rule uh, Bill in Parliament. Uh, in September, you had this sense of gathering crisis. Uh, and Lord Lawburn, who had just recently resigned from the Cabinet, but who had been one of the most, uh, 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 I won't say violently, but one of the most trenchantly pro-Home Rule members of the Liberal, of the Liberal government, uh, came out with uh, his famous letter, which appeared in the Times in September 1913, saying that there had to be some kind of um, um, discussions on finding a compromise settlement. Now, it's very hard to to think that uh, that was orchestrated in advance by the Liberal leadership. Uh, when Asquith met separately with Bonnerlaw and with Carson over the autumn and winter of 1913 and into early 1914, uh, uh, his, uh, in those discussions, which were secret at the time, they were later revealed, but in those secret meetings with Carson, he tried to, uh, to interest Carson in compromise settlements which fell short of full exclusion of Ulster. Uh, he tried the idea, which would have been acceptable to Redmond, of giving Ulster what he called home rule within home rule. In other words, uh, allow... Um, uh, all of our uh, allow a 32-county Dublin Parliament, but uh, have autonomy within that Parliament for the Ulster Unionist counties. Uh, uh, Asquith argued for that with Carson. Of course, Carson rejected it out of hand. But 
Carson was putting this, or sorry, Asquith was putting this to Carson as what he called veiled exclusion. In other words, it, it was some kind of a, a fudge uh, aimed at uh, a formula that would be acceptable to nationalists and Redmond, which saved the appearances of 32 county unity, but which would at the same time have given uh, Ulster Unionists the local power. There were other compromise measures suggested also, such as um, giving Unionists a weighted majority within the Dublin Parliament so that uh, they would actually end up, even though they were a minority on the island, their vote would end up being uh, numerically as strong as nationalists. Now, this would have been a totally undemocratic um, procedure, but uh, it was advanced as one possible um, solution. The, the point here is that Asquith was feeling his way forward. Um, I cannot accept that he had pre-programmed the entire thing to fail with all of that, you know, um, uh, 18 months previously, with all of the uh, discussions and the the uh, parliamentary time that, that that would have been wasted on all that. It's simply not credible to me. Uh, Jonathan Halpin. But just, just a couple of points. On the stepping stone argument, I don't think we can... Uh, we can't advance it in defence of Redmond because Redmond didn't seem home, see home rule as a stepping stone towards independence, right? So I don't think we can, we can uh, we're, not, we're not talking about Michael Collins here, we're talking about John Redmond and it seems to me he, he plainly didn't. He, 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 the Home Rule Act for him was something which would, 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 would properly cement Ireland's place within the Union on a fair and equitable basis and within the Empire because he was an imperialist. As well. Secondly, on the on the point of protection of minorities and so on, which I, which I went on about a bit, um, uh, we see in Northern Ireland, for example, there was structurally there was some protections provided, but particularly the voting system. But but th th that was changed in I think 927 or 28 to remove proportional representation and so on. So uh, if, if protections aren't robust, uh, that people now may not believe that they're going to last very long, and that can be part of the problem. But can I just say finally, and I, I disagree with Mr. Bruton here, I mean, uh, uh, we cannot say that Home Rule and the introduction of the Home Rule Act and what happened to it is somehow simply an Irish problem. This is a British political problem. And as Ronan's book in particular has brought to mind again, uh, the Home Rule crisis is a British political crisis about the British constitution, as well as it is part of the narrative of, of unionism and of, of uh, nationalism and so on here. And it is, it is in a sense, uh, remarkable, and I refer back again to, to British co contemporary consciousness about their own constitution, that time and again uh, the British state manages to forget or not to realise, let alone to acknowledge, uh, uh, the part that its play and their own constitution plays. The British constitution, after all, remains technically anti-Catholic. Now we'd say, oh, should they never do that and so on, but it does. I read an obituary about two years ago in the Times, Charles probably knows who wrote it, of, of a Labour MP who died uh, at the age of 44 or 45, right? As it happens, uh, he was gay, but that's okay because those laws were repealed in the 1960s. But until 2000, he could not have become a Member of Parliament. I haven't checked the, checked the legalities. This is what this obituary said. Do you know why? Because he had once been a Catholic priest. And in 2000, that disability was removed, as it were, from the British Constitution. And one of the things, again, comes out particularly of Roland's work, uh, it, it is, there is, I mean, we talk about Rome rule, quite right, then we the narrowness of Irish Catholicism, this and that and the other. Uh, but but the, the deep-seated, uh, 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 not just fear, in a sense, but contempt 
Catholicism as a religion, which 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 imbued not simply uh, as it were unionism, but imbued also the higher the higher echelons of 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 of, of English liberal p p politics and society. I'm not answering the questions, but I think these are these, these have to be said, and we have to bring these questions back to Britain, just as in terms of the the, the Scottish issue today. We can't simply say Ireland's all over now, and we Irish have got to sort it out. Thank you. And I'll ask Ronan Fang to comment, then we will have four or five questions to the floor, and then we'll wind up. Okay, Ronan? I want to begin by saying, making it absolutely clear that I'm personally totally and utterly opposed to blood and iron as a solution to problems. That is not the same thing as saying that blood and iron works. It shouldn't work, but sometimes it works. And it worked in Ireland because of pusillanimous and inept behavior of British governments. I might add that I'm in no sense an Anglophone. My own mother was English. You can probably detect that much from my accent. And part of my education was also in England. But for John Bruton to say, let's not be too critical of the British, or I think he said the English British, it doesn't matter because it's the English in this case. Rather reminds me of Noel Coward's song, I think it was in the late 1940s or 50s, let's not be nasty to the Germans, let's not be nasty to the Hun. I mean, I'm sorry. We have to recognize that British failures were responsible for violence and for the triumph of violence in Ireland. And that is why violence triumphed. If a Home Rule Parliament had been set up before the Great War began, I think there's a fair probability there would have been no such violence. Certainly the Irish Republican Brotherhood would not have had the launch pad that they had. I'd like to return to, finally, the, a question, a, a gentleman there at the back, very interesting point about James Joyce. James Joyce was right. He was a wise man. He wasn't a politician, but he was a shrewd man. And Gladstone knew when he introduced his first rule. Gladstone tried to persuade the Conservative Party to introduce the first rule because he knew he couldn't get it through the House of Lords where there was a Tory majority. The Tories weren't having any of it because they saw the political opportunity and they wanted to play the orange card. But he knew that. He went ahead, and he was so inept, he couldn't even get it through the second reading in the House of Commons, because his party split. Now, to lose, it's a bit like Oscar Wilde, to lose one parent and two parents, to lose one wing of your party is one thing, but to lose both wings of your party, both the right and the left, argues a degree of political ineptitude. Now, Asquith was not inept in that sense, and I quite agree with what um, Mr. Emilides said about his... Uh, policies had to satisfy his own electorate. And his policies did satisfy his own electorate. When the Great War broke out, Asquith stood as a superb liberal prime minister, as the man who'd kept the party united, unlike Gladstone, who'd resolved the Irish issue without bloodshed. And he'd resolved it by kicking it into touch. And we know by his own admission, the quotation I read out to you, the cost that Ireland and Britain paid for that. Okay, we have two questions up the front. We've got this gentleman with the beard, and then we've got Charles Isaac. Thank you. 
So far, the panel has dealt with problems within what one would call these islands. And I want to ask them each to comment on their views about the international dimensions of the Home Rule Bill, which I would see as having been considered with great importance by leaders of national liberation movements against British imperialism and colonialism in the empire of the time. Um, there were lessons to be learned from this and the fact that so many countries later learned from this uh, debacle of the Home Rule Bill and other things from Ireland uh, led to the development uh, of the British Commonwealth up to 1949 and on the abolition of the British Commonwealth in April 1949 and some ignorant people, none of course in this room, sometimes refer to the British Commonwealth although it ceased completely to exist in 1949 and was replaced by the Commonwealth of Nations and then later Ireland played a considerable role in republics being allowed to be members of the Commonwealth which was agreed on the 27th of April 1949 in the London Declaration and Ireland had played a role in that although Ireland had left the Commonwealth uh, seven days before the 27th of April 1949 rather sadly and now in the Commonwealth we have the best solution to the problems of empire and colonialism that the world has ever seen with 32 of the 53 members being republics and many of those countries realizing the important role of Ireland uh, with O'Connell of course with Parnell and with Redmond and the Home Rule Bill and the debacle that happened to try and avoid problems there so if we could get comments from the panel moving out of these islands to the international dimensions of great significance of the Irish struggle for freedom uh, against uh, rule from London over many, many centuries, I think that it would be welcome to broaden uh, the debate to include such elements. Thank you. Okay, Charles Isaac next uh, then. Just, Mr. Chairman, I've been asked to say there's only 10 minutes left on our table. Yeah, that's, so yeah, that's what I mean. running for. out of it. Okay, uh, Charles who, Isaac who, and then you do. Okay, you're next. <coughs> just, uh, just briefly, um, Ronan Fanning is, of course, right when he says that the Home Rule Act did not solve the Irish question. He's undoubtedly right. Um, but I don't think that means, uh, it necessarily means, its passage, is an, its enactment is an event not worthy of celebration. Uh, the Easter Rising, lots of other things, didn't solve the Irish question. But it doesn't mean necessarily they are not important. Now, the importance of that act, I would submit, is what it signified in terms of British opinion. From then on, Irish unionism was dead. Ulster unionism was still a factor. But Irish unionism was dead. The debate, uh, all parties in England accepted there would be self-government for the greater part of Ireland. 
that was the platform upon which politics proceeded when the Great War ended. And that was a platform from which the people who negotiated the Treaty of 1921 benefited. That this was English opinion had moved on. British opinion was crucial. The, in 1921, the British were not prepared, of course, to coalesce. They were not prepared to concede a republic. Neither thing happened. But they were prepared to concede what was effectively dominion status. And the reason for that was British opinion didn't see that as all that different from home rule. So in a way, without getting into denigrating poor John Redmond, who strikes this incredibly raw nerve with some people in Ireland, you can acknowledge an achievement from the home rule thing, even if, um, even if you don't concede fully the case made for it. It did provide a platform. It did contribute to Irish, uh, the achievement of Irish independence. And it seems to me that's why it should be honored, irrespective of the general viewpoint from which you come. Here, here. I wonder, has Ronan Fanning put too much emphasis on, on the wooden bridge speech by John Wedmond? Haven't mentioned it. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Well, except that, yes, well, well I, I, I did, yeah, I suppose indirectly. You did yeah. mention it, if I'm. It was a terrible mistake, yeah. Yeah. But most of the people that went to fought in the First World War, and I don't like using classes where, where the great majority were working classes, and then a minority of very wealthy people of, 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 from big landowning families. And the Home Rule Party's political strength came from the middle classes. Mm. So they may have gone anywhere. And look how many people went in the Second World War when we were a free nation to fight for the United Kingdom. And one point to Ewan was, um, which I, man, I have huge respect for, when he said that um, the Conservative Party made mistakes in Scotland. They did. They have one seat left. But my God, Alex Salmond is making mistakes. Because he's suffering from the sins of all nationalism. He, he, he blamed Westminster for bad weather. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay, right. Right, we'll take... <laughs> We'll take um, the gentleman over there, and then we'll t then we'll take Frank Mo Okay. Thank you, Chairman. Um, question is: Is it fair for history to judge parliamentarians um, for their failures? Uh, predicted some of the possible consequences of the home rule issue in Ireland and beyond. Um, if you move forward to the Troubles in Northern Ireland, 1968-69, no one could have predicted how prolonged suffrage that conflict would be. If we move forward to Scottish independence, if it's not conceded, there'll be uh, division and bitterness forevermore between Scotland and England. If it is conceded and secured by Alex Salmon, has anyone predicted all the consequences of securing independence. For instance, um, Scotland will only succeed if it secures membership of the EU um, family. And can Scotland be certain that countries like Spain, with their own separatist problems, will vote in favour and give credence to them securing this independence? I don't think 
um, people have uh, thought the whole process out in Scotland and, uh, and I suspect in time if he secures independence that people will be talking about Alex Salmon in the same way they're talking about John Redmond. Okay, one more question, then we'll go back to, okay, this gentleman up here, and then we'll go back to the panel for a last few words. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Um, when Countess Markovich murdered Constable O'Brien just up there at the Green, it was one of the last of the, one of the first, rather, of the, the deaths of 1916. Four years ago, the last death of result of 1916 was a young British soldier outside the Marazine barracks in Belfast collecting a pizza delivery. I've got the thousands of dead between that and that horror in Belfast could have all been avoided if, as John Bruton said, we had home, we had the, the program enacted by uh, John Redmond. Now I can walk through. O'Connell Street today, as I will, and I'll pass two plaques on the, uh, at the newsagent stand at the corner of Abbey Street and O'Connell Street. That plaque are to my grandfather's first cousin, Captain Tom Weaver. No. Weaver Street in Escorty is named in his honour. Now, he was killed there in, on the 27th of April, 1916. His brother Paddy was in the GPO. Um, my granduncles, three granduncles, were Redmond, Redmond volunteers on the Western Front. On the day Jack was, uh, to, uh, uh, Jack, uh, Tom was killed, my granduncle Jack was mortally wounded at Hullish in the, Greek, the German gas attack at Hullish. My three granduncles were tradesmen, two masons, and not the free kind, the expensive kind, <laughs> and, 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 a, and a, a carpenter. Now, my, my great-grandfather was a very important builder in South County, Dublin. I can walk through Dunleary and see Frank Weaver Glass, uh, Kingstown, on the, on, on the roadway. Now, they were Redmondites, and I am proud to say that I am related to Redmondite soldiers that fought for freedom in Belgium. I'm not particularly proud of, of uh, Tom Weaver, Captain Tom Weaver, but I'm certainly very proud of my granduncles in World War I. Okay, thank you very much. Now we'll go to the panel in reverse order. Uh, Ro uh, Ronan, uh, Ronan, just like to say a few last words. I think I, I would agree more or less with what Charles. I mean, I, I'm not saying that the Home Rule Act shouldn't be recognised, but it seems to me that the claims that John Bruton is making for it are, are extraordinarily extravagant, and, and they rely very much on counterfactual history. What if? What if? What if? And history, it seems to me, is difficult enough without uh, trying to posit what if might have happened. As he acknowledged in, in, in a couple of moments in, in, in his presentation, we simply don't know. And there was a school friend of mine when I was a teenager doing the intercession of Christian Brothers School in Monkstown. And, uh, he used to say, and I, I'll give you the sanitized version. <laughs> he, he gave you, um, he was get very impatient with people saying, if, if, if. He'd say, if, if, if. If my aunt had a beard, that wasn't exactly what he said, if my aunt had a beard, she'd be my uncle. And that's as much sense as counterfactual history makes. Yonan? <clears throat> 
on that point, and to be counterfactual, I think we're to some extent in assuming that there would have been some kind of implementation of, of home rule under whatever circumstances and with whatever protections for Ulster. I think we, we mustn't forget that Ulster, uh, certain, well, nine county Ulster, let alone six county or four county, it was already in a sense heavily militarised. And I simply don't believe if Ulster had been excluded. Uh, from from uh, or, or sorry included in some way in 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 a an all island settlement however uh, it was pr protected that Ulster would Ulster men would not have in a sense would, that they would have forgotten uh, what they had achieved between 1912 and 1914 precisely through moving towards militarism and I also don't think that 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 uh, at least some Ulster nationalists would in a sense would 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 have taken lying down, if, if you like, what they would perceive as continuing uh, and perhaps increased intimidation, uh, pressure not to live in certain areas and so on, which I think would probably have followed. Thank you. Uh, Dermot? Um, well, all I'd say is just a, by way of a parry of the point that um, the deaths of the War of Independence, um, that period, pale into insignificance beside the deaths in the Great War. Uh, it, uh, that is certainly true in strict numerical terms, but if we look proportionally um, at the, shall we call it, the uh, uh, killing intensity, um, if we take the total number of deaths between January 1919 and April 1923, that's 52 months. Um, with what can be called three separate conflicts, the, the so-called War of Independence, the sectarian war within what was then the, the new Northern Ireland, um, and finally the Civil War. We have a total of uh, over 6,000 dead, and that, when you do the sums, that actually gives you a killing intensity of 12 times greater than the killing intensity of the 30-year Northern conflict that ended in uh, the late 1990s. So I think uh, we need to kind of look at it um, in proportional terms, uh, uh, which will give uh, a better sense of the impact, the traumatic impact on Irish society. Many of the, uh, many of the failures of, the, of early independence can be traced back to that trauma. Thanks. OK, John Bruton, last words. Th thank you very much. Well, first of all, I think the study of history uh, is useful only to the extent that one can make judgments for future conduct arising from it, just as the study of economics or economic history or any other history. And I would suggest that implicitly in the very strong and very justified criticisms that Ronan Fanning is levelling at British politicians, he is implicitly making a judgment that if these politicians hadn't made these mistakes, things would have been better. So that's a form of what if in itself. I think the point of studying history uh, is to learn something useful for the future, and that's uh, therefore engaging implicitly in a what if scenario. Secondly, as to the, uh, the, the point of the deaths in 1916, 1919, 21, and so forth, and sort of relativizing those by saying, ah, yes, but far more people were dying on the Somme and all of that. The point is that as a result of the decision of the leaders in 1916, the deaths that occurred in Ireland, in Ireland, were additional deaths. Additional deaths over and above the ones that were occurring on the Western Front. And for us in this country, we need to make judgments about what we or our predecessors made. 
And that's why I feel to some extent, and this is my point in response to Ronan, which he took up, focusing on you know, what the British did here, there, and everywhere in the world, and they did an awful lot of things, focusing on Persia, for example. That's all justified as appropriate study of history. But in terms of judging what we in Ireland ought or ought not to do or have done in the past, it's not relevant. We in Ireland should make judgments about what Irish people did first. And then we can go on and criticize what other people may have done. So I don't think we should relativize the 1916 deaths by, by sort of saying, oh, you can forget about them because so many other people died elsewhere. And I'd like to respond to the question here about the international dimension. This is an important question. I think the parliamentary struggle here for home rule that succeeded did inspire Mahatma Gandhi in his move towards uh, independence in, Italy, in, in India and his refusal to accept violence as the method of achieving it. And I would point out that like John Redmond, Gandhi favoured recruitment in the army to fight in the Great War and explicitly said, to, said so. And he said it because he felt that Indians need to prove, needed to prove that they were prepared to take their responsibilities for freedom against autocracy, which was essentially the view that Redmond took. Now, not too many people realize, I think, in this country that Gandhi and Redmond on that issue are on the same side. Uh, and I think it needs to be said because there's so much criticism and Ronan was particularly harsh, I think, in judging the wooden, the wooden bridge speech there in a moment ago in his intervention. What would have happened if John Redmond, I asked this question in my own address, had said, oh, don't join the British Army? That would have vindicated all those who'd been opposing Home Rule. If, having got Home Rule two days before, he sort of more or less turned on the people who had granted it to him. Now, okay, maybe he shouldn't have had to take their views into account. And if Ireland had it, had its complete independence, well, then he wouldn't have had to take them into account. But he did. That was the concrete situation in which he was in at that time. And I know people are saying, oh, well, you know, we, 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 you know, Redmond deserves to get credit. And I'm glad that Ronan agrees that he should be commemorated. Well, he hasn't been. We have Daniel O'Connell, who didn't get repeal at one end of O'Connell Street. We have Charles Stuart Parnell at the other end of O'Connell Street, who didn't get home rule. All around the doll, we have all the 1916 leaders who didn't get a 32-county republic. Statues everywhere. Nothing recommend, nothing, nothing remembering John Redmond. Until I took, on, until I took uh, the picture of John Redmond by Lavery out of wherever it was being hidden in the National Gallery and put it up in the Taoiseach's office. Well, John Redmond was remembered properly for two and a half years, between 1994 and 1997. And I have been in communication with the Taoiseach. And uh, I'm very glad to have learned from him that he intends to ensure that that 100-year omission is remedied and that in an appropriate physical way, within the confines of Leinster House, which is the seat of a par an Irish parliament, which the preparation of public opinion by the Irish Parliamentary Party that Charles Leiser has referred to did so much to create, that there will at last, at last, be a recognition of the Irish Parliamentary Party's work of John Redmond and John Dillon. And not as some dismissive afterthought, but as 
putting them on a level with all those others. And of course, I should mention Edward Carson is also recommend is also remembered in another part of Ireland, but John Redmond isn't remembered anywhere physically, but he will be. All right, thank you. Um, I'm afraid that. Right, thank right, I'm afraid that we have to call the halt there. Sorry for everyone who wasn't able to get a question in. And I'd like to thank all our speakers, and I would like to thank the organisers for arranging this very interesting morning's work. And I'm sure that, and I wish it could go on longer, but I just imagine you can carry it on in your own time as you, as you think fit. Thank you all. If I could, if I could just round it up a few, a few small announcements. I want to first of all, on behalf of the Reform Group, thank again the speakers and the chairman I think we had a very good discussion on a very important occasion, and we are remembering, and I think we are the only organization who has made a big effort to try and remember this day. Could I say, so, sorry, could I say please also, we want to thank people for their very generous contributions today, which I'm glad to tell you has covered the cost of running this seminar. And if anyone would like to go to Buswell's Hotel, we're going across, if any, informally. Thank you.